Hey everyone, welcome to episode 158 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Gasterapple, Lee McLeod is here as well. Before we get started, today we're going to have kind of a different episode. We are going to be doing a topic rather than just delving into sort of the, the tournament results and decks of the week and stuff. Uh, this week we are going to be talking about how to play against Control. But before we get into that, want to pitch our Patreon and stuff. Uh, if you would like to lend us some support, if you've been enjoying the show and you want to give us, give us some support, you can head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast and sign up. I've been sending stuff out. We've got people posting in the Discord with their eating their food tokens, apparently. So, you know, come join that uh, incredible, you know, super brilliant, hilarious community. Just really the height of comedy here, so can't 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 recommend being here enough. Yeah, you can't just ship people out food tokens and expect people not to eat them. That's not a, yeah, I don't silly. know what I expected. Also, you're just such a <laughs> snack, you and Collins both. Yeah, well, we got to get you a food token too at some point. Well, if food's even playable by the time that even happens, <laughs> they Gilded Goose is gonna be good for a minute still. They have seemed to have banned all of the Moxables and Okos of the world. Which were previously powering up all the food cards. Then making Gilded Goose work in various different shells in Historic in particular. So that card's got some, like, got some wings. Whatever it's got going forward. (laughs) It's got some honks. We'll be making one food on turn one for a while, I think. Alright, I'll write to Wizards and ask them to put in a Historic food token for me. Because that's Mm -hmm. that's how the people will see it. Yeah, perfect. Should we just kind of dive into this yeah. do you want to sort of intro this because this was a little bit your idea yeah. i mean i certainly have input into how to play against control but you you kind of took this idea and ran with it yeah we're in like kind of a dead spot week i think everyone's kind of just waiting for the format to change more uh but pretty much all the formats since we're so close to zendikar and i think next week we're going to be talking about legacy so just wanted to take a time to do like a strategy episode mm-hmm. just like a general strategy thing sure it's one of the things i really like doing just a general strategy thing that's she's usually pretty useful and this one came from actually uh one of the i sneakily asked for topics in the uh, discord i just asked for people to do questions of the week for like any general strategy thing because mm-hmm. i was looking for ideas because i had a couple of but people and our Discord submitted some, and someone had a question about playing around counter magic. And I kind of jumped off that. That was a dupes. And I kind of jumped off that and said, hey, let's just talk about playing against control generally. Because that's. Mm-hmm. Control's been around for as long as Magic has been. Yeah. And a really big thing here that is probably going to be a. a a concept that we revisit multiple times over the course of the episode is that just playing around counter magic isn't enough. Like. You have to take into account a lot more of their strategy than just like, oh, they have mana up and I have a spell, but I don't want to get it countered. Like, there's a lot more that goes into it than that. Like, sometimes you are supposed to get it countered. Yeah, I think there's a lot of just general discourse in Magic where people tend to simplify things so they're easier to grasp. Mm -hmm. You see that in a lot of discussion and everything, especially around preview season or like deck difficulty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those are the two things I see simplified the most. (laughs) Uh, Magic's a really complicated game, and you can't just see, like, X deck is easy or X deck is hard. It just doesn't work like that. They're all pretty difficult. Yeah, and a lot of the scale depends on what your opponent is playing. You know, it's a lot easier to... Like, it, it, it's a little weird. A lot of times I think that 
this is a little off topic, but the decks that people describe as like easy or hard often like that much more accurately describes like how easy or difficult it is to play correctly against that deck. Like commonly like control decks are described as difficult to play, but I think that in reality, it's just that it's more that it's really difficult to play correctly against control decks. Aggro decks are actually quite hard to play correctly, but they get a rep as like being really simple. But playing against aggro decks, like you know their ranges and stuff a lot more clearly. You know, like I'm playing against mono red, I need to preserve my life total, or I'm playing against mono red, Ember Cleave is the only thing that matters. So like, you know, there are places you can get edges, but it's it it's more that like playing against aggro is way easier than playing aggro given the you know, range of possibilities of things that can happen to you. Yeah, when I'm just picking up a deck to play, like a random turn that I have prepared for at all, I will usually tend towards control decks if they're available, just because I know they're a lot easier for me to pick up and play, because I don't have to rely on figuring out what the cards in the format are to play around, except for, like, the one Ember Cleave or what have you. Right. <laughs> There's only one or two decks with one Ember Cleave in them, but... You know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. So do you want to sort of define our terms here and, and sort of frame this discussion that we're going to have today? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're going to talk about playing against control. There's a bunch of different definitions of control decks and a bunch of different kinds of control decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the most common one, just across the standard mostly, uh, is the draw-go control. They're, control decks are almost always blue-based. That That's just how control and how blue works. Mm-hmm. It gives you card advantage and control magic. And there are some like non-blue control decks that pop up every now and then. Those are usually propped up by like a hallmark, uh, specific powerful cards, and they don't—they're not season-wide control decks. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking of like black-white control from the Battle for Zendikar era, where you had a Gideon and Soren and Languish and all that. Right, and these are almost was... always these like board control decks that are good in creature-heavy metagames. Yeah, that, that's exactly what they are. They're just removal spell control decks that have usually a big haymaker or mm-hmm. some engine card. Yeah. And and those are honestly pretty simple to play against. They're metagame choice decks. Right. So because they're playing a ton of removal spells, if you sidestep that by playing uh, just a blue control deck, you usually crush them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Anguish done making Gideon deck could never beat a cancel to save its life, so... No, it couldn't. And those decks also can't beat, like cards that don't or decks that don't rely on creatures as a way of winning the game right so any like enchantment kill kind of thing would beat them by itself uh those are those will pop up every now and then they're the only tricky part about playing around them if you're playing like a creature deck is just to know the range of their removal spells and one of the things that is actually useful against them is to hold your creatures to overload removal removal is always more expensive than creatures pretty much always so if you can make it so that their murders or doom blades, two or three mana cards, line up against, if you play two creatures a turn and they can only cast one removal spell a turn, you just want to hold creatures so you don't go creature. They kill it, creature. They kill it. You just want to hold them all mm-hmm. so they can't use their cards. And then play two creatures. They kill one. Maybe they untap. They kill another. Then you play two more creatures and then they can't kill both of them. Yeah. So you get ahead that way. And of course, this all, you know, is influenced by exactly which removal spells they have access to. You, like, you have to know what their suite is, and uh, in particular, whether or not they have any wrath effects. And those are kind of the defining things. 
Also, yeah, you can't go too slow because these decks always have something really big in them. And like, if you don't have a board the turn they slam their Gideon or their Obnixilus or whatever, like you probably are just going to lose at that point. Yeah, and it's super contextual. Those decks don't pop up all the time. I don't remember the last one in Standard since we've got so many blue cards recently. Well, so, in a way, the Sultai deck is closer to those than it is to an actual blue control deck. But it's actually a ramp deck. Yeah, but it's closer to a like card advantage ramp deck than anything else, really. It keeps getting like labeled as Sultai control, but it's just it's an Uro deck. Like it's not like control decks don't have eight lands on turn five very often, but this deck does all the time. So it's a bit of a misnomer for sure. But and those are like the Sultai ramp deck is kind of what I would. I don't really think that's a control deck, really, mm-hmm. pretty much. There are control decks that go big that don't play as much. They play to the board a lot. Those are like tap out control decks, yeah. like mid range decks. Uh, I think of the Esper one from Theros. Esper control was really big in Theros, original Theros block, uh, where you had Elspeth Sun's Champion, Ashiok, like a bunch of Planeswalkers, as well as Supreme Verdict. Mm-hmm. So you would just clear the board and then stabilize with Planeswalkers, and you just keep playing threats. And these decks played like maybe two dissolves and a something some medium counter spell and a bunch of sphinx's revelations to refuel yeah they, they weren't trying to just like keep open their mana and play a card draw spell then counter your spell then slam a big threat eventually they were just get from the start trying to kill your stuff play a planeswalker and get advantages from there yeah and so we are going to be you know the the kind of platonic ideal control deck concept really came back into favor uh with torrential gear hulk and then teferi hero of dominaria like yes. those that era was sort of this like oh my goodness blue control decks are like a real thing again and they i, I guess scarab god was also like part of that but it, it really leaned on because our counter spells have been kind of the same for a long time we get cancel plus slightly better yeah, it's than like cancel. syncopate or a cancel those, yeah. those are like the counter spells you get in standard now yeah so it it right now in standard it's the the control decks playability is rarely determined by the quality of the interaction like you have to have interaction that works against the stuff that people are doing but it seems like its existence is really determined by the quality of the like the power spell like whatever the thing you're trying to get to is and if that exists then it's possible to build an actual control deck if that doesn't exist and you don't have a payoff then there's no point in controlling the game i guess i'm thinking about like modern for a long time when we didn't have like pre even jace unban like there was just no reason to play an actual controlling deck because once you got to the late game you still weren't doing anything more powerful than anybody else yeah, people. And that, that was a time where people played a lot of Jeskai control. It was all bolt your thing, Snapcaster bolt, and then you like turn to the page with Celestial Colonnade or maybe Restoration Angel if you're feeling frisky. <laughs> and the problem with those decks were they just weren't powerful enough for modern. You like small ball killed all the creature decks like Affinity, but then your your big way to close the game out quickly was bolts or a celestial colonnade which is so slow for modern right so you just quickly got outpaced by everything yeah and and you didn't have generic enough answers because you were priced into lightning bolt lightning helix and so like you know i preyed on jeskai decks with living end like a terrible deck in modern 
but Jessica literally just couldn't beat it because you were putting threats in that their answers just didn't do anything against, which is the risk in playing control without a real way. Like, you could have, like, pretty bad answers if you are casting Teferi Hero of Dominaria in standard as your, like, last thing that you do. And then it doesn't matter what your, how inefficient your answers are because your thing is so good. That's what the control decks are aiming for in an ideal world. Right, and it's like, these cards have been standard recently. Turnsville Gear Hulk was, like, the best one because it was just a huge creature. It had flash. You could always keep your mana open. It gave you a, an extra spell. It was a huge toolbox creature. Mm-hmm. Then there was, like, Scarab God, which you did have to tap out for, but it wasn't too punishing because any almost anything that killed it just brought it back to your hand. And then after it was in play, you could just keep up in your mana and use its ability to mm-hmm. develop. And then even most recently, we have Team of Reclamation, which is a control deck because it just passed turn for forever and ever and ever. And it did get to play Uro on its turn because Wilderness Reclamation. Uro's messed up. <laughs> but... <laughs> It had the uh, expansion explosion in game two, which was a way to, it was a utility spell early, uh, but then late game it was just like a 10 damage burn spell that drew you 10 cards and you killed them with another one. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to commit to that until you, like maybe you could explosion for four, draw four cards, and then the next one hits them even harder. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point, calling it a control deck. Uh, and one of the things that I think makes it very clear that it was one is that disenchanting the wilderness reclamation was often not actually a very good strategy and that's really similar to like vraska's contempting the torrential gear hulk was never going to allow you to beat blue black control killing their finisher that they already got something out of is a and and like having a dead card in your hand until they elect to cast their finisher is not a winning strategy against control yeah the control's game plan is just to accrue advantage and not die until it eventually kills you with whatever. It doesn't even matter what it is. Mm-hmm. The The reason they're playing the Torrential Gear Hulks and the Scarab Gods and all that is just because those are the best resource efficient. Mm-hmm. They, they don't cost very much to play, and they're easy to fit in. But it doesn't matter what a control that kills you with. I've killed people with uh, that split card that's really bad. It makes a 4-4. Four, four, it it's basically a Sarah Angel. It makes a sphinx. I've oh, killed yeah. people with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and Castle Ardenvale is the like current like minimalist control win condition. Yeah, you do have to worry about actually finishing your games in time, so I wouldn't recommend that one. But <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't really matter what you kill with, which is why attacking the win condition out of a control deck is not good. Because at the point where their win condition is relevant, either they're losing by a lot and need it to stabilize, like Dream Trawler. Mm-hmm. Or they've already won the game and it's just the thing that's killing you. So if you get rid of that, they'll eventually find another one. You're not doing anything. They've already done their thing. They've already progressed the game to their end state. Right. That does... The the one caveat to that is when the deck is very bad, but the win condition is very good. And that is why there were a reasonable number of times where just having a spell that killed Teferi was enough to beat the blue-white control decks because their cards were so bad, but they played four Teferis. And if they interacted, you know, three times and then cast a Teferi and then had something up with with the untap, then you died uh, because Teferi is so nuts. So when the win condition, like, massively outpaces the rest of the deck, then 
it's possibly right to to aim for it, but that's relatively rare. Yeah, and the only card we see that is the case for that now is Uro, which it doesn't even that strategy doesn't even work right. against. Uro just comes back, <laughs> and and they already drew. Even if you have exile removal against it, they already drew multiple cards off of it, and like, yeah, you need to be able to punch through Uro or something. Not many strategies work against Uro, to be quite honest. Uh, yeah, Uro is a bit of an exception. I'm kind of gonna ignore its existence for mm-hmm. generalizations. Because I can't be like, oh, except for Uro, yeah, for every rule, <laughs> like that's that's just the card that breaks all of them. And I mean, we would be saying the same thing about Oko if Oko were, you know, something that we still had to play with. Like, yeah, that card also honestly, broke every single rule. It's also pretty impossible to play control decks if Oko exists. Yeah, because that ends <laughs> up being to... the biggest thing that you're allowed to do is this three mana planeswalker. Yeah, exactly. overrides everything else. And then the games just become the weird Oko versus Oko control, which is not how anyone thinks of Magic. No. <laughs> not since, uh, you know, December or whatever it was when it got banned. Yeah. Yeah, so we are mostly talking about these control decks that have, you know, six-ish counterspells main deck, maybe a little more or something, some removal, maybe some sweepers, likely some sort of Planeswalker or other card advantage thing that pays them off for getting to the late game um, and obviously all of this stuff is tailored to whatever metagame they find themselves in and kind of not super timely because it's hard for control to exist in standard but control has experienced a bit of a renaissance in modern lately so i think that and generally control will exist in lots of formats so it's worth talking about how to play against it yeah for sure and and the the lessons you can take from just playing against control is the same. It, it, you can generalize it to other matchups. Just having knowledge is good enough. Whereas mm-hmm. you want to, like, if you want to choke their mana at certain points, you can translate that to other matchups where that's you maybe discover that's important. Yeah. Yep. And limited as well, because oftentimes a player will take a control role, and a lot of the, a lot of similar things can apply to to those sorts of games. So, let's go over like the each subcategory or like archetype how you would play against control in it yeah so oh basically i guess we should define the control i think we've already done it a little bit but the mm-hmm. control X main goal is to just stall the game out deal with the creatures deal with the spells eventually close the game out however so when you're playing like aggro or the mirror or combo you need to know how to play against it let's, let's start with aggro i guess yeah it's kind of you, magic you just... at its purest form a little bit is an aggro, yeah, deck aggro versus control, control. Deck. And, and this is just like classic magic you need if you're the aggro deck you just need to kill them before they can stop you before you run out of resources and once you run out of resources that's when the game slips out of favor mm-hmm. yes there's a bunch of different kinds of aggro decks uh, there's a bunch of different kinds of control decks too but that's essentially what it boils down to you need to be able to Put them to a losing position before they're able to take full control over the game. I think probably the best way of doing this is understanding exactly what their relevant answer cards are and sort of when they want to be casting them. And when you're playing an aggro deck against a control deck, I think the thing that should be in your head all the time is what spell do they want to cast on this turn? And how can I make this turn awkward for them? 
Just don't let them do the thing that they want to do on that turn. Yeah, if it's turn three, like if you're on the draw as an aggro deck and it's turn three, they've got three open mana. That's a that's cancel mana. You probably don't want to be playing a three mana spell. <laughs> <laughs> because then you're trading your three mana spell for their three mana spell. And sure, you get an attack in with your other two creatures, or creature, whatever you have on the board. But they've done what they need to do. They trade completely evenly in mana and bought another turn against your entire turn. So when you get to points like that where you figure out what they want to do in that turn, you want to make their life difficult, however you can. Mm -hmm. So in that specific scenario, on that turn three scenario, maybe you want to play your first two turns differently so you can play two one-drops on turn three or maybe a two-drop and a one-drop. And sequence them so that if you play the one drop first, maybe there's nothing coming because you're holding up with a lightning strike or whatever. So they're pressured into countering the one drop, which is whatever. You don't care about it. And then you can play two drop afterwards. Yeah. And another thing that really helps is if your early threats actually matter against control such that they can't ignore them for more than a turn or two, making them do something and making their cancels dead on certain early turns is like really really helpful so things like you know long tusk cub was really good at this you can't just ignore if if you go uh attune with ether into long tusk cub the control deck just can't ignore that long tusk cub for very long they just die to it so those early threats um and also things like you know glint sleeve siphoner or dark confidant going way back but that's that's a higher power level than we often get in our twos these days but even something like lightning mauler which is a two one with soul bond the soul bonded creature gains Mm -hmm. haste uh it doesn't do anything on its own so it doesn't feel like a rewarding target to kill but it's so important to have around because when you play a second creature into it, you can give that creature haste and then go forward. Mm-hmm. So even though itself is a bad card, allowing it to empower your later plays makes it worth killing. Yeah. If there's any cards like that you can build in your deck that build off your plays, like synergy-wise, that's also a good thing to look for. Mm-hmm. And there is a caveat to, you know, like, oh, they've got three mana up. They don't always have cancel on turn three. Oh, no. And... Depending on what your hand is like, you have to make... And this this mostly comes with having played the matchup and familiarity with your deck, deck's capabilities and stuff like that. But a lot of times, like, if you've mulliganed and you're a little light on resources and stuff, you, you're not going to be able to afford to wait on... Like, yes, getting it countered... Getting your three-drop countered on turn three is going to kill you, probably. But if you don't have a lot of resources and you just like need to get that into play to deal some damage or you will lose anyways, then, you know, giving them that cancel in hand and, and, and just like allowing them to represent it. And, you know, you may be choosing to lose the game by playing around the cancel. So it is a very complicated sort of analysis there. Like you don't want to give them that, that good turn, but sometimes you're giving them a good turn by not playing anything there or whatever. Like, skipping your turn is often not quite the answer unless you have something very specific going on. Yeah, and I want to touch on something else you mentioned, the mulligans. I think mm-hmm. that's actually really, really important in this specific matchup, uh, especially pre-board. Because the more you mulligan pre-board, control decks are almost always tooled for aggressive decks mm-hmm. uh, pre-board. They rarely get a lot better after board. 
So game one is the tougher one. Uh, that being the case, if you mulligan as the aggro player against a control player who hasn't mulligan very much at all, uh, that's when you want to play around things less. <laughs> yeah. Because you just don't have enough resources. You can't afford to slow down your game plan with fewer resources mm-hmm. and allow your opponent to keep accruing advantages by, like you said, maybe they don't have the counter spell, but you chose to play around it and you only had six cards, so you just lost by a card or two. Yeah. Uh, especially playing around Wraths. When you when I mulligan an, an aggressive deck, I almost never play around Wraths unless my draw is incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Because you just after you mulligan to six or five, you just can't afford to play around Wrath anymore. Yeah, like they have four in their deck, maybe You've, they've got to have it on turn four, or they're going to lose most likely. The the best feeling. I, this is not particularly insightful strategy, but the best <laughs> feeling was playing against like. Esper control with Kaya's Wraths, and either they like played a basic island on turn three because that was what their hand had or whatever, so you just knew that you weren't getting wrathed on turn four. Or and, and you know, that that is really important stuff to pay attention to, obviously, if they have some sort of restrictive spell and they have set themselves up to not be able to cast it, like no like pay attention. This is only this was much more relevant when Kaya's Wrath was the Wrath now that there's Shatter the Sky or whatever, uh, it's rare that you're going to be in a spot where you know you can't get Wrathed on turn four. But, you know, keep an eye out. Um, but also, like, the turns where you're, like, holding your breath for a Wrath and they, like, sigh and play a Temple on turn four, and you're just like, yes. Because oh, oh, you, you, you didn't play around the Wrath because you couldn't win if they Wrathed you turn four anyways. So, or you, you wouldn't win if you had your, your card still in your hand. One thing that is really nice is that uh, an unfortunate, one of many unfortunate side effects of Teferi Time Raveler is that it really punished pacing out threats. So yes. if you chose to play threats kind of slowly in order to not get wrathed, Teferi was the perfect just like, okay, I'll put that back into your hand. like, And I'll draw luck. a card. <laughs> yeah, you've just been time walked and now I'm hitting my mid game mana and you're never going to win. While also being like perfect insulation against Embercleave. <laughs> yeah, that that too. Um, I like how you have this list of threats that are naturally good against control decks. You know, we've seen a lot of <laughs> our successful aggro decks have threats that are very resilient to kind of normal control interaction. So you've listed Mutavault and Scrap Heap Scrounger, Smuggler's Copter, and Haste Creatures up. Uh, Planeswalkers, I would count in that category as well. Yeah. If you have a good aggressive planeswalker. And I, a thing that you notice is that, a thing that I notice is that none of the stuff on this list is legal and standard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we haven't gotten those tools. This is one of several reasons that aggro just has not really been good in a while. Yeah, there's a couple reasons for that to be. I think there's a lot of different factors in current standard that Agreed. are working against aggro at the moment, but I I notice when aggro is at its true best is when it has cards that are very difficult to deal with. I remember when Mono Red was the best deck uh, in Almancat, it had Hazard in it, which was just an impossible to deal with card. Mm-hmm. And that's not like a an artifact or land like most of these cards are, but it's just a very strong red card. That was impossible to get rid of the board and had an effect even if you couldn't turn her on. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if we look at the list of cards in that aggro deck, it was a ton of cards that just kind of only half of the ways you would normally interact with a creature actually work against them. So, like, Bomat Courier is a one-drop that is accruing advantage really quickly. Like, that's one of those, like, they're going to have to pay mana to deal with this at some point, and then you get an opening. The Kenra that uh, you could eternalize, like, if they ever killed that, it could just come back. Scrap Heap Scrounger could come back. Ramunap Ruins was a land. Just, like, a whole list of things. When we were playing Black Red, Heart of Kieran is a vehicle. Um, Chandra's in that deck are, you know, very powerful. The turn after a big removal spell gets cast or whatever. Um, or they're ho- holding open a removal spell to deal with your creature, and you just play Chandra, and it's hard yeah, to deal with. although at that point of time the removal spell Vraska's that was being contempt. held up a lot was Vraska's contempt but yeah. still still a good point but yeah so like a, a lot of times the best aggro decks have these threats that just like normal removal is not really that good against and even like counter spells aren't good against scrap heap scrounger and stuff like that even cheap you know cheap counter spells or whatever is not effective there yeah can't counter random ones at all no definitely not <laughs> But those those land type of things don't come around very often. Uh, I remember when the, the, the last man land that was printed was like what Inkmoth Nexus. <laughs> um, it's been a while. Well, it was like mutable. Other than right? mutable, other than actual mutable, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> then I guess so. Yeah, Inkmoth Nexus was like the last new man land that we ever got. Yeah, I guess we got the Battle for Zendikar ones. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. Of course. That was a different problem with that format where almost all the cards from Battle for Zendikar sucked. <laughs> yeah, and they really did not live up to the pedigree of the original two-color Manlands. But I will say the the Mardu Vehicles deck that was mm-hmm. popular during Battle for Zendikar Kaladesh had all of these factors in it mm-hmm. where it was really good ways of pressuring outside of conventional interaction you had a bunch of smugglers copters and gideon allies and is just an incredible threat and and that was one of the best decks in the format for a long a, a solid period of time yeah yeah it was it was still good even when the sahili combo was the deck to beat mm-hmm. which is a saying something because <laughs> yeah. that deck was messed up yeah but i mean mardu had their inspector so yeah, Thraven Inspector is also messed up. Maybe not as much, but... Oh, I should call it Thraven Inspector. That's actually a pretty good aggro card, like, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Just any way of accruing small advantages while keeping up pressure. Sadly, there's just not very many of those that I can think of. Uh, but they're, they're very useful. While you're constructing a deck and you want to play against these control decks, you want to kind of skew your deck towards being naturally resilient to control rather than having to rely on sideboard games. Mm-hmm. Because... Like like I said, the game one is always going to be tougher than the post-board games. And you just don't want to give up too much percentages in game one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The The Thraven Inspector thing is so huge. Uh, having a one-drop like that, the, there's such a difference from the control deck's perspective between an aggro deck that started on turn one and an aggro deck that started on turn two. And even if the threat is only a 1-2 that, you know, replaces itself eventually, so Thraven Inspector is very, very good, but you certainly couldn't afford to play just like a 1-power one 1-drop one unless it does something like that. But even the 1-power 
you know, that just adds up. That's just extra damage, and that is a, another thing that the control deck has to deal with. If it can force the control deck to cast a Wrath earlier than it would, you know, if it would ra if the control deck would rather sandbag the Wrath for a little bit longer, but you've got, you know, this Inspector did three damage, and it's adding a damage to every attack, so now you have to Wrath this turn. Like, the, the gap between those two things having a one drop and not having a one drop is so vast that, you know, it's one of the reasons that the red deck right now, you know, we're going to list like all 10 reasons that the red deck right now is kind of pathetic, <laughs> but the one drops are horrible. Yeah. The best one is Scorch Spitter, which yeah. is, which is fine against control kind of because it has two power, but it's so bad against everything else that it's, it's very, very limited. And yeah. There's just not a. Basically, you want your as much as possible. You want your cards to be more than their face value. Mm -hmm. Like the Raven Inspector is a one-two and a clue. Bomat Courier is a Raging Goblin, and it threatens to draw like three cards or more. They they just have to deal with it. Uh, Scrappy Scrounger comes back. Uh, Earthshaker Kenra comes back. Those are really easy to see. But when your cards are like Scorch Spitter and Rimrock Knight, Rimrock Knight's a great card. I actually really like Rimrock Knight. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, that's one of the best cards in the red deck that's not named Embercleave. Yes, that's true. But if Rimrock Knight didn't have Boulder Rush on it, it that card would not be playable because right, it's just a 3 1. Even if it could block. <laughs> yeah, and, and generally, like the best, even like the best aggro creatures are not just like. The highest power creature that you can get for two mana you know just like random three power creature for two mana is way worse than you know to the earthshaker kenra is that the name of earthshaker it? kenra yeah. is the name of it yeah is way worse than earthshaker kenra that just has a lot more utility like karizev was the other card that yeah yeah and karizev was had this weird evasive thing like got in some damage and the two one like every turn was strangely difficult to deal with like Kari's have just like worked in a weird way that you like yes obviously the card just attacks for three but like it was still even in the kind of mid-rangey aggressive red decks at that time because it had a lot more utility than you would think well so one of the weird things about Kari's have is that it is two bodies that sounds mm -hmm. super obvious but if you've only got one blocker you can only block two damage and you can't get rid of Kari's have. it's really hard because she has menace it's really hard to get rid of Kari's have. So she's always presenting that monkey turn after turn. Mm -hmm. That's its own form of card advantage, being able to make combat so difficult. Uh, especially control decks don't really have that many creatures. You might see a wall token from Birth of Melodies every now and then, but they're not playing to the board the way these aggro decks are. So, yeah. I mean, I guess to pull back to actually like playing the aggro decks against control, always think about how to make their turns awkward, but always think about what you have to do. What does the game look like? What does the game that you deal 20 damage look like? Does it mean that you have to... I have to play this Goblin Chain Whirler on turn 3 and it has to resolve. There's no other way unless I'm attacking with this Goblin on turn 4. I just can't deal 20 damage. Then play it, and if they have the cancel, you lose the game. But, you know... If they don't, you've got a shot. Yeah. And then if you... felt I'd follow up to that. <laughs> I'm blanking a lot. Well, and there's, so there's also the classic, you know, on turn 4... In a, a format where the control decks are playing a four mana draw to, you know, on turn four, play a good spell. Like, 
force them to choose between countering your your good spell or casting their draw to when you know when they're lower when their hand is kind of small and they would really like to cast their draw to and this was particularly relevant when their draw to was glimmer of genius because the card was so good that they really really wanted to get that done it's a little less relevant when their draw to is like hieroglyphic illumination and maybe they can just cycle it or something and the payoff is not that huge but whatever their like thing is that they're trying to end step on you like be aware of when that can happen and make that turn not an easy decision for them yeah if they have to counter your four drop instead of drawing two cards they don't have the cards in their hand to deal with your four drop like if you've just not played it so if you don't play it, then they draw two cards. They probably draw. An, they might draw an answer to the four drop next right. turn. And it just yeah. doesn't it, matter anymore. Really self defeating to sandbag in that spot. Right. And oh, one of the things I did want to touch on is the the dealing twenty damage point. Uh, when you're trying to figure out if your game how you win with the cards in your hand, sometimes you just can't win with the cards in your hand, and you have to rely on top decks, mm-hmm. which is perfectly fine. That's why haste creatures are so good. Uh, in one of the games in Historic on the uh, Lotus Box Invitational we watched, covered, was Gavin playing Gruul. And Gruul's a deck with mono haste creatures. It's pretty much just 24 haste creatures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the way that deck plays out a lot is you just play the board, attack them down, then they get rid of your board, you have nothing left. But there are like four, and you've got, you know, 10 four power haste creatures in your deck. Mm-hmm. You just need to draw one of them. Yep. You got it. And that comes from a little bit of experience, and you have to allow yourself to trust your deck to give you the goods at that point. Yeah, you can't... Everyone kind of disparages top-decking the cards you need, but it's not a sin. You you need to play the game where you can get into a position where if you draw specific cards, you just win. No, it, Yeah, I mean, it's not a sin, it's a skill. You know, getting lucky, like, okay, sure, like, he drew exactly what he needed... That, that in itself is not a skill, but putting yourself in that spot, throwing away creatures so that you can get your opponent to four because you have Glorybringer in your deck or whatever, like, that is how you need to be playing as an aggro deck. And if you're not setting that up, then you're choosing, to, you're just giving up percentage points. Aggro decks are not decks where they need to hoard their resources and make sure they eke every single possible bit of value. There's a lot of that because you want to make sure you get value of your cards. But you're not trying to hold on to them for future returns on investment mm-hmm. if you know the game's not going to last that long or you can't allow the game to last that long. And you just can't against control decks. Eventually they'll hit six or seven mana and their big stuff will start happening and you can't catch up anymore. I mean, ultimately, your cards are only worth the damage that they convert into. And, you know, something like Light Up the Stage obviously doesn't just deal damage but it ultimately converts into more damage than most cards for one mana will do because it it gets you cards. But, like, you can't be too worried about value when you are just trying to get your opponent to zero. The value is how much damage you're doing to your opponent. So I'm sure you've heard this before, but the card advantage in in this matchup for the aggro deck is how many cards in hand your opponent has after they lose. Yes. If they didn't cast four or five of their cards, looks like you're up five cards. <laughs> How many draw fives are there in standard, Chris? Yeah, not many. Just Bomat Courier. <laughs> I was thinking Expansion Explosion, but sure. <laughs> and I mean, not that Bomat Courier is in standard, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, of course. 
Do yeah, you want to talk I, about... No, go ahead. I, I just think that playing aggro decks against control is extremely difficult and extremely rewarding. It's the type of matchup where your play is going to make a huge difference. And you need to play against the actual control deck that you expect to see at the tournament because everyone plays out differently. Their answers all cost slightly different amounts. And, you know, there's a difference between playing a red deck against a deck with Oath of Kaya versus a deck with more, like, two-mana removal spells. Like, there's fundamentally different stuff that you want to... Fundamentally different ways that you want to sequence and fundamentally different threats that you want to lean towards in your deck building. So we can give generalized advice, but a huge amount of playing aggro decks against the control deck is understanding exactly the cards that your opponent is choosing to have against you. And you, as the aggro deck have the impetus of most of the decision-making in the game. The control deck is just going to play whatever deals with stuff the most efficiently each turn, and your job is to make that job really hard on your opponent. Yeah, and that's why I default to the control decks when I have to play tournaments with no practice, Mm -hmm. because I don't need to think super much about what I have to do in a game. It's just very clear. Uh, if I've got a hand with a Doomblade and a Cancel, I want to Doomblade their 2-drop and Cancel their 3-drop. Yeah. And if if, if aggro players let me do that, I'm going to do it every <laughs> single time. And and I'll admit, this is one of the reasons why I only really lean towards aggro decks when they have those really resilient or tricky threats. If you're going to allow me to play with some Planeswalkers or some Hazarettes that are really good, some Scrap Peep Scoungers, then, like, I'm totally down. If I got to play, you know, just... Scorchfitter? Terrible creatures so that maybe I can Embercleave my opponent, and I have to set it up perfectly every game, and also, like, their cards are just better than mine, and their interaction just actually works against all of my creatures because they're just dumb creatures with the exception of Annex sometimes, but they're planning for that then I'm not excited to do it. Do you want to talk about like sideboarding or how to sideboard, what cards are good, how sideboarded games play out differently? Yes, we should definitely do that. That sounds like a good thing. Yes. That I did not write down in our cheat sheet document. I think sideboarding as an aggro deck is really complicated and really easy to overdo against control. There is a point where you are bringing in too many duresses and you're doing their job for them, which is trading cards. Right. The the difference between a card getting Doombladed and you duressing a card out of their hand is they that they don't pay spend mana, mana on it, <laughs> which is a negative for you. So you want to not over... Like, Duress is very, very good against control decks because it allows you to see what they're playing with, primarily. That's mm-hmm. actually what I think is most important. Yeah, the peak. Yeah. yeah. And then it lets you take the most important card that you're allowed to from their hand. So... If you draw an opener with one duress and just your normal aggro cards that you saw in game one, you're good to go. You're set. You know what to play around because of duress, and you don't have to worry about the most threatening cards because duress took it. And then you get to play your game plan around that. But if you draw like two duresses or three duresses, there's there's a point where you Mm. can't. You don't have enough resources, and it's not just drawing a duress. Like maybe you brought in fight with fire because you wanted to deal with their Baneslayer Angel or Lyra Dawnbringer or whatever. Drawing a duress and a light uh, fight with fire 
they do different things, but they're essentially the same card. They're just answering your opponent's card in a matchup where you can't afford to be doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe Fight with Fire is how you deal with Lyris. You can win the game past turn 5. But if it's in your opener, you draw it early, along with other interaction, you you can no longer get to the point where Fight with Fire is actually good against Lyra, because even though you killed it, you don't have enough resources to convert that into twenty damage. closing the game out quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so you have to figure out exactly how many slots you can spend on that sort of game plan. Also, how many of the threats in your deck are not actually good against the control deck allows sort of gives you a little more flexibility there where like okay this dress would have been the second dress would have been a goblin chain whirler which i didn't really want to draw against them anyways so kind of fine i guess but uh, one thing that i have also liked doing is finding the better threats and maybe they're not good against everything but you can put them in your sideboard like i have had success in the past with glint sleeve siphoner in my sideboard because that's just the scariest two drop. That was the scariest two drop for the control decks to play against. And it wasn't good against Goblin Chain Whirler, but against the control decks that didn't have Goblin Chain Whirler, it was incredible. So a sideboard plan that involves switching out threats can sometimes be better than the traditional, like, I got all these duresses sideboard plan. Yeah, and the threats you want in your sideboard instead of your main deck are generally the ones that are harder to deal with. Or are cheaper than the other threats in your main deck. Like maybe you want a couple Skargan uh, Hellkites in your main deck just to close out games. Mm-hmm. But against control decks, especially post-board when the games get slower, it's a lot tougher to rely on them. Yeah. <laughs> so you might want to switch them out for cheaper threats that you are you can get on the board and start accruing advantage with getting right. damage in. Right, right, right. And, you know, a lot of times those threats are actually like Planeswalkers is, is the type of threat, you know, yeah. that you would bring in in the matchup. Like um, a Tybalt, I don't know the title of it. Rakish. The Tybalt. Some, yeah, anyways, Tybalt that makes <laughs> little devils, yeah. Yeah, he's just like a kind of annoying to deal with. He stops a lot of random hate cards against, specifically red decks in this mm-hmm. example. Like it cuts off a method of their interaction and is a threat still. Yeah. Uh, so finding cards like that, especially Planeswalkers, Chandra, uh, Torture Defiance was a really good one too is going to be very important, even if it slows down your deck a little bit. Because if you following up some mediocre creatures that your opponent's dealt with with a Chandra forces them to, even though it slows you down, it forces them to deal with threats on two different axes, and there's not often a lot of cards in Standard that can both efficiently deal with Planeswalkers and creatures at the same time. Yeah, uh, and, and Chandra just represented such an existential threat that, like, you know, if, if they wrathed and then you played a Chandra when they were at 10 and you didn't really have almost anything else going on, you still felt pretty good because you resolved yeah. your Chandra. Chandra got to draw extra cards, and if they didn't deal with it in like two turns, you got an emblem and killed them. Yeah. Like, not every card is going to be Chandra, but. <laughs> right. And we certainly don't have anything like that right now that an aggro deck is able to play. Um,. One of the reasons for that is that Uro shuts down most of those types of things, so. Yeah, there's our, there's our Uro exception for this category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so should we move on to the next archetype and how to play versus control? If we want, yeah. we want to move on to combo decks and sort of that yeah. game plan? I put combo 
next because I wanted to just truly preserve the pinnacle of magic, which is control versus control. <laughs> so we're just going to talk about combo, which is just a different. It's spicy aggro against control. That's really what it's about. Being. <laughs> spicy aggro. Because <laughs> it, it has the same game plan as aggro deck. You mm-hmm. just want to make limit their interaction against you and kill them before they can take before they can do their game plan, mm-hmm. their end game. Yeah. Uh, it's weird to classify this matchup because every combo deck is so different from each other. Right. Like even more so than any other type of archetype if you look at different control decks and match them up against each other you can see similarities all right. over the place there are there are con- combo decks that can't beat two counter spells and there are combo decks that literally just couldn't care less how many counter spells your opponent is playing yeah so it's super 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 contextual but there i found the combo decks are just generally good against control decks they're advantaged generally because when the control decks are typically built for aggressive decks or mid-range strategies, they want to control things on the board. Mm-hmm. Combo decks often do not care what's on the board, <laughs> or they only care about specific things on the board. Well, so, and they're also not putting the threats onto the board that the control deck is prepared to deal with. Every Exactly. Every Wrath of God that you draw, every Doomblade that you draw against Clark Clan Ironworks or whatever is just a, a blank card with no text whatsoever. Yeah, if you're a spell-based combo deck like Storm or KCI, Supreme Verdict, Path to Exile do very, very, very little or nothing. So that's a dead draw every single time. But at the same time, so that that's kind of like a coin flip whether they draw the removal half of their deck or the counterspell half of their deck. Mm-hmm. But if they draw like just half and half, it's usually not going to be enough interaction to deal with what you're doing. Which is an advantage uh, combo decks have in game one, uh, just despite what they are. Like, uh, I played Godfarer's Gift, a lot of different Godfarer's Gift decks. And one of my favorite ones was the blue red one, which just played a bunch of dopey creatures that you didn't care if lived or died because it would turn on your gate to the afterlife to allow you to get your end game, which was the Godfarer's Gift, to bring back Combat Celebrant to kill him at one turn. <laughs> so you may think that removal is good against this deck because it's just. A bunch of creatures it's 20 creatures and six artifacts or whatever the key numbers are there's six artifacts and the rest of the deck's creatures and lands but removal is not good against the deck because you're killing fanatical firebrands mr of inquiries and just terrible creatures just horrible <laughs> creatures <laughs> they're not worth spending mana on to kill yeah but you can't not kill them because you attacked i've attacked so many players to death with just like a two one ones and a two two because they were worried about abrading the actual card the actual artifact i needed to win the game with so that's an advantage comedics have they get to play the you gotta deal with the stuff that's going to win the game and this intermediary stuff if it's threatening enough like if i can use it to actually threaten you mm-hmm. uh, it's not super interesting to play combo versus control in game one whatever yeah, you're generally just gonna you. win most of the time because they're gonna draw two removal spells that don't do anything against you like, or 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 counter spells if that's bad against you some some part of their deck is gonna be bad against you yeah. no matter what combo deck you are yeah and if they draw that too much you're gonna win the game and you can let the game drag on that's that's actually a huge advantage of the combo decks 
Mm-hmm. You can typically let the game drag on for a very long time because you have that ability to just win in one turn. Yeah. Agrodex can't win in one turn. <laughs> it's very <laughs> difficult. You can't just like have your first four cards get Doombladed and then just stockpile cards in your hand and then win. That that doesn't work as an aggro deck. But it does work as a combo deck, depending on what you're doing there. Yeah. You can just play a stalemate game where you put out cards that don't matter and force them to deal with them. And then you're stockpiling your stuff while they're stockpiling your stuff. But you know if your stuff goes through like you force it through you just the game's over so you can force that point of interaction there yeah very different from the aggro deck drawing a turn seven runaway steam ken yeah (laughs) drawing the turn seven hidden strings doesn't sound great but it's it's great it's perfect (laughs) well it's no pour over the pages but still yeah but the the real challenge against the control decks is playing with those board games because mm-hmm. that's where their sideboard cards come in. Yeah, <laughs> control deck sideboards are all full of. There's like two main kinds of control players I play against, which is people who really, really want to beat the control mirror, and they just have all control mirror cards in their sideboard, <laughs> or they want to beat the combo players, and they have all hate cards in their sideboard. And some people are reasonable and have a mixture of the two. Either way, <laughs> it's it's. Like, the control deck sideboards are often kind of full of the kinds of cards that the control players, like, really want to be playing all the time, but they had to make concessions because they get attacked by creatures. And so then, you know, they get all of their Narsets and their, you know, whatever specific counterspells they want and that sort of thing. Like, stuff that is really backbreaking and really, like lets them take over the game as it goes along and play this like prison role um that makes that the plan from game one which was you know sandbag cards and then eventually just kill them with it that game that game plan is a lot harder post board especially now with the prison planeswalkers at a lot of sideboards that are really effective against a lot of combo decks yeah you have to this is like the entire job of a combo player is just know what the cards inside boards are (laughs) because (laughs) that's what you have to do you have to know exactly what the control player or anyone but specifically in this matchup what they're going to bring in how they're going to attack you like whether your deck rest in peace is good against or duress is good against counter spells are particularly strong uh you either have to have some answer to that or a pivot in your sideboard so, like, you can, if, you, if your deck is weak against counter spells, for instance, you can play cards like Defense Grid or Vexing Shusher to mm-hmm. directly make counter spells not good against you. You just have to draw your anti hate card. Or you can just play cheap creature threats and have them slip under the counter spells while you force them to deal with that because they probably worked out removal against you. And particularly effective because negate is such a preeminent sideboard card against combo strategies they're gonna have a lot of negates if you can slam you know psi was the archetypical like here's my threat that is completely sideways from all of your sideboard cards against me yeah one of the strongest things to do is to figure out the weak cards in your opponent's game one configuration usually that's going to be creature removal for combo decks and then put if you if you can find threats that are good enough depending on what the format is 
you can put those types of cards in your sideboard so when they go low on answers to one thing you can bring them in to dodge your answers to your main stuff Mm -hmm. so i played lotus field not too long ago and one of the things i do would have hydroid crisis in my deck which dodges all interaction that you usually play against lotus field except for damping sphere because there's no dodging that it just makes your mana horrible (laughs) and they're trying to not great against narset either no, but it's not horrible against it. It at least can kill a Narset, maybe eventually. Because, well, if they're not attacking your mana, it's usually going to be at least a 4 4 or higher. Mm-hmm. But because it's a creature that does stuff yeah. and helps your game plan, that's kind of a sweet spot. And it lets you dodge, it lets you take advantage of the fact that they've made their deck weak in some aspect, in this case, taking a creature removal, while making it stronger in another aspect, which is interacting with your main combo. Mm hmm. So one of the cool, or the things you should be looking to do is figure out what hate people are playing around with, and then make plans to either fight that hate directly, the defense grid style, or nature's claim for rest in peace, or if you want to take a sideways approach, if your deck allows that, whereas to put in extra threats or some other angle of attack. Yeah, I think this is really, really key, and I think this is more important. Obviously, like... Figuring out your sequencing and understanding how the games actually play out post-board and stuff is work that should be done. But as far as, like, here is some advice that will give you the biggest win percentage bump in playing combo decks against control decks. It's that a lot of players playing reactive decks, their sideboard planning against combo decks begins and ends with, here are my hate cards for their combo. And as long as you know that, you know, they're bringing in two stonies and two rest in peace against me. And how how do I deal with that? Do I sidestep? Do I kill those? And a lot of times, if you sidestep, like, you're going to catch a, a huge number of players, like, completely unprepared for your sidestep. I, it's happened to me. I have been sidestepped and been blindsided by threats that I just didn't expect. Yeah, and one of the... Even if they do expect it, which I think is a, a strength of the combo against control matchup. Mm. Uh, for instance, I was playing KCI against Jeskai control. So they had rest in peace and stolen silence. Uh, but they also kept, and so my answer to that was Psy, Master Thoughtrist. Whenever you play an artifact, you get a creature, just smack them over the face. They've taken out most of their, none of their removal skills Psy anyway. Right. right. <laughs> lightning, lightning bolt and lightning units don't do it. It's just I mean, they have, they have paths, but yeah. Yeah, it's just path. So in this scenario, my opponent actually kept in two Path of Exile because he knew that it was very difficult to beat Psy. Mm -hmm. So he drew a Stony Silence and a Path of Exile, and I nature slammed the Stony Silence, I never drew Psy. Yeah. I just, I didn't have it. So so I won the game because he had a a path in his hand instead of an extra, like, negate or whatever, whatever he took instead of it. Because even though he was prepared for my sideboard plan, it does make your deck weaker if it doesn't match up against the main combo as well. Mm-hmm. Path, kind of defensible. I mean, certainly defensible. Like, I, I'm definitely not saying your opponent did the wrong thing. He probably did the right thing because you just can't beat Psy otherwise. But has a little more application because it does take out Scrap Heap Scrounger too. But Scrap Trawler? Or Scrap Trawler. Yes, Scrap Trawler. It does take out Scrap Trawler too. But... 
that's not a necessary part. Like, you can still do a lot and get way ahead through a pack. It's, I don't think I've ever been sad when my scrap trawler has been targeted by removal. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. All right, sack this, sack this, sack this. Right. And you're still doing your thing. Yeah. Because you still, always play the scrap trawler last. You still draw eight cards off of the scrap trawler. So you, as long as you're aware of the existence of removal spells. Yeah. Uh, and you don't even in that deck specifically you just naturally play it around it because you always wanted to play scrap trawler second anyway mm-hmm. just in case they had something yeah so in that case path i think he did up into pathing my scrap trawler and i just drew another one off the first Didn't artifact matter. i cracked or something yeah. like that yeah and it just it just couldn't matter less <laughs> yeah I, I i just i can't say enough for sideboard sideboard juke threats out of combo decks it's huge uh sai is the reason that kci hit s tier like it just it was fine sai got like it was a good deck and sai got printed and all of a sudden like everybody's plans just didn't function against the deck anymore yeah i i beat spirits with a sai while they had like two stony silences out Sai just, just kind of soloed them <laughs> <laughs> Because they they they'd spent two cards in Stony Silences, mm-hmm. which allowed Psy to build an army. Yeah, <laughs> and so you like Lightning Bolt one Lord, and then your your one ones are better than their guys at that point, and that's right. It. So anything that any threat and Psy is not going to come around every day. Not every combat can actually afford to play good threats mm-hmm. on the sideboard. Uh, the Lotus Field deck was just a combo deck in Pioneer before bands uh, with Underworld Breach. The sideboard of that deck doesn't exist. It's basically nothing. <laughs> There's no juke threats. Yeah. Because really, you didn't need them. Your deck just wasn't weak to anything, except for Damping Sphere, which is not something you can reliably juke and still have a deck with. Like, you just need to kill it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it turned off your ability to just cast spells full stop. So there's not, right. not a way to get around that. <laughs> <laughs> so... One of the, in building the sideboard, trying to, to do Riley's hate cards, is you need to figure out what your deck can actually support. And one of the biggest problems I see with anyone picking up a combo deck and sideboarding against any deck, but especially control decks when they have so many answers, is just over-sideboarding. Mm-hmm. There's also a problem in the aggro matchup, but it's especially a problem in combo decks because there's such piles of cards mm-hmm. they're very difficult it's very easy to disrupt the synergies in your deck generally and you're not making your game a better by putting in a bunch of naturalizes or a bunch of negates sure you want to have basically the the advice i'd give the best would be to figure out how many cards you're willing to take out of your deck before putting any in your sideboard Mm -hmm. so like if i figure out that i want to sideboard and counter spells and the control mirror in my combo deck i'm like okay how many counter spells would i realistically want to have in my deck i'm not sure how many cards can i take out in my main deck that i'm fine with and maybe i have like a couple rule spells or like i can shave a couple cards here and there and maybe i just want three mystical disputes because i want to also put in like a couple nature's claims or what have you 
So that's five cards. It's not very much. So there's no point in putting like six counter spells on my sideboard because I'm scared of control decks. I just don't, I'm just not capable of putting in nine cards in my, <laughs> between my main right. deck and my sideboard. It, it will stop making your deck better at some point because drawing yeah, you, a bunch of counter spells in no combo doesn't do anything against the control deck. Yeah, but you may be able to answer their negates or whatever they're fighting you with, but you've no longer successfully done anything that makes them want to answer so it's self-defeating so you've done their job for them right exactly like the aggro deck when you duress their doom blade but don't put real threats into play it's just tricky it is you tricky need to be very aware of it and one of the traps that i think i've seen people fall into some is and and actually i think that lsv and BK on one of their recent podcasts talked about this as a sideboarding trap, but this is particularly relevant for this discussion, is be really cautious about taking glue cards out of your deck. If I'm playing a combo deck that is running a bunch of serum visions and whatever, I am, and I'm bringing in, you know, counter disruption for my control opponent, I think that it is usually right to take out some number of combo pieces before you start taking out your glue cards because those glue cards are going to help you now you know they have a rest in peace in play you can't go off through it so now your combo is a three card combo where you have to draw piece a and piece b and a naturalize effect you're not going to be able to do that without your card selection stuff you can't yeah, drawing just be... three of piece a is not going to be good enough right you, you don't want to draw that instead of, like, Serum Visions in your sideboard, sitting there. Yeah. Not doing and, anything. And you're going to have time to go through your deck, and you're going to have time to put these pieces together because one of the cards they cast in one of their turns was spent on Hate Card. And so, you know, generally sideboard games just go longer, and you can take advantage of that a little bit. I think time is actually the deciding... the biggest factor between all of these archetype matchups against control like against aggro you don't have time you can't afford for the game to go long mm -hmm. control versus control is variable but combo decks can allow the game to go very long against control decks because their end game is just almost always better they're just winning in one turn against control yeah it is i mean i i do want to caveat that though with the thing we talked about before which is like mostly the hate card planeswalkers are such like abominable threats against a lot of combo decks whether yeah. it's narset or you know teferi doesn't lock out most combo decks unless you are trying to cascade into something um but you know narset ashiok whatever like karn the great creator karn the great creator exactly yeah karn the great creator was it just absolute nightmare if you were trying to do any sort of artifacty combo it doesn't die to nature's claim like it's really hard to take out you plus it and it doesn't die to any of the red answer you know you can't galv blast it well what's crazy too is you can minus it and get another hate card yeah, <laughs> or, karn. yeah right <laughs> karn is just very strong because it's yeah the planeswalkers like you mentioned are break the paradigm because they are hate cards that do something yeah Right, because they, they're, like, clocking you, too. Like, Narset comes down and says, you can't cast Serum Visions anymore, and I'm going to dig eight cards in for another hate card or counterspell or whatever. Yeah, so I guess to go back into don't take your glue cards out, if your glue cards are made bad by their hate cards, then consider taking some of them out. If they have Narsets, then 
Serum Visions is worse. If they have Thalia's, then Serum Visions is worse. So, you know, there's some of that basic, like, this card is bad in this matchup because of their cards. So I would take that I would take account. out. I would take out some Chromatic Stars against Rest in Peace decks because you can't draw cards off Chromatic Star anymore if Rest in Peace is in play. Right. Sphere works just fine, though. Yep. Perfect yeah. mana ability design right there. Yeah. Just cheating and gets through Rest in Peace all in one step. Oh, yeah. I think that's kind of it for combo decks. It's it's mostly just sideboarding. you, you got to figure out what to do. Yeah, I, th- I think a huge amount comes into play in deck construction rather than in just straight... You know, there's sequencing is so huge in the aggro versus control matchup. Uh, it is obviously still big in combo versus control, but a huge amount of your edge is going to come from having the right cards to have access to, I think. It's having the right cards and making sure you're just prepared. You know what they ha- the range of what they can have, and you've built your sideboard accordingly, so you know what to do. Like, whether yeah. it's board and threats or board in the anti-hate cards or what have you. Yep. And never underestimate the value of surprising your opponent with something they didn't consider before. Yep. It's hard to do that in modern magic, but, you know, maybe you're playing historic and your opponent just literally doesn't, doesn't know, know cards, cards like before. <laughs> You want to talk about the pinnacle of magic now? <laughs> is this control versus control? Oh yeah, this is this is the pinnacle of magic. So honestly, this is one of the reasons why I rarely bring a true control deck to a tournament, is because I just don't want to get caught in the game one mirrors where your threats don't live and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I understand that, but. I love playing the game one control mirror because no one ever practices it ever because it sucks. <laughs> it's horrible. And I just win a bunch, <laughs> especially since I play so fast. I almost never draw, mm-hmm. which is a real danger in these matchups for sure. Uh, so be, let's just actually talk about the, the matchups. So yeah. it's a mirror match control versus control. Uh, I think for the sake of discussion, we're just going to see if you're playing close to a, the same 75 or like the same 90 or whatever mm-hmm. range of cards. It's not going to be like a huge disparity where one of you is playing like Esper Control and the other one's playing Blue Black Control, but they're completely different styles. Mm-hmm. Let's just gonna assume they're both the same style of control. Yeah, like counterspell Edex with some dead removal spells against each other, and we've got like Teferi Hero of Dominaria as our thing. Yeah. So... You gotta buckle in. <laughs> that that's you. The game's gonna go on for a while, especially game one, and you have to. Basically, what I think is most important in the control matchup is you have to be aware of what the opponent is doing based on how they're playing, and that's mm-hmm. really hard to do. It's yeah. very difficult. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that you're playing mostly the same cards. And most of your cards don't do anything. You've got card draw spells, counter spells, removal spells, and like a couple threats. If you're lucky, the threats are good against removal. Like Dream Trawler is just naturally good against removal spells. So if you can manage to resolve one of those, you're, you're gold. Uh, Teferi is actually pretty good against removal too, because there's just not a lot that deals with it. Mm-hmm. So like if you resolve Teferi here of Dominary, you're very, very far ahead. So because of that you need to control the other three factors of your deck, the card draw, removal spell, counterspell spheres, and then the 
most important thing in your deck, which is actually your mana. Yeah. That's actually Mo- the biggest The vast part majority of, of control game ones are won and lost on making land drops. And it's not just making land drops. It's also reacting to land drops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how I frequently get ang- gain edges in control mirrors. Okay. Uh, you can tell what your opponent's how their hand is shaping up or what they're doing based on the land drops they make. Mm. Like, for instance, and this is, like, pretty obvious, but if they play Fable Passage early instead of turn 4+, plus, they're low on lands. They're low on lands mm-hmm. because you want to hold that because if you crack a Fable Passage, that's one less land you can draw. And typically in these control matchups, you want to draw a lot of land. So not only are you playing it as a tap land, which could be ideal and could just not matter, because maybe there's just nothing you want to counter on turn three in the control mirror. That happens all the time, mm-hmm. especially game one. But because you're using Fable Passage to take a land out of your deck, you're decreasing the density of lands you can draw, and you w- would way rather draw land than a removal spell. It's just night and day. So if I see something like that, I know that they're low on threats, or, or excuse me, low on lands, and heavy on something else, and I just need to figure out what that is. It's hard to do that, though, because just nothing matters in the control mirror in game one. Mm-hmm. You have so few threats and so many answers. So one thing I would recommend everyone do in game ones of control mirrors is just never counter card draw spells. <laughs> if they cast Glimmer of Genius or Chemistry's Insight or whatever, just let it resolve. Those cards are really, really, really good in games two and three because they draw relevant cards. Mm-hmm. But in game one, they're probably drawing a removal spell, a land, or a threat. Some percent, like among those. And the only card you care about, though, is, is a threat. And your hand's going to be full of removal or counter spells. So just let them spend their card draw spells drawing cards that you can deal with, rather than using what few counter spells you actually have to counter the card draw. Unless you have read them and you think you can choke them on mana here. Yeah, exactly. That, that's why the mana is so important. Yeah. Like, if I see my opponent miss a land drop, like land five, they have mm-hmm. four lands in play and they've missed land five, I know that they have some combination. They have no lands in hand, clearly. They would have played one. So they either have card draw spells they want to play, because it's hard to play a... It's, it's weird, right? Because Planeswalkers is just a big part of the game now. Uh, if your opponent goes, just has four open mana, and then you play your fourth land and pass turn, they can play their card draw spell, which you'd expect. If they don't do that and then they mess their fifth land drop, then you know their hand's full of answers or threats or counter magic. So now what you can do is you can just jam your card draw spells to uh, at the end of their turn to pull ahead, and then use those resources to keep making your land drops while your opponent doesn't, and then they'll start to discard to hand size. Uh, they'll discard dead cards like rats that don't matter, but then you'll know that they, they don't have anything. And you can start throwing out cards that... You don't want to give them time to draw cards with their card draw spells. Mm-hmm. So you can start running out threats, like medium threats like Planeswalkers, to make the way for your Dream Trawlers. This yeah, is... and, and that's actually what, you know, a big expensive threat, it's not a good card in a counterspell matchup, but the presence of those cards in people's decks warps the whole game around them. And that's what makes, like, 
if somebody draws their castle Ardenvale, it's crazy good. It's incredibly good because it, it keeps putting tiny little threats into play without card investment and without putting stuff on the stack. But also, at some point, it forces your opponent to do something about them. And then you can just go Dream Trawler. Dream Trawler with counterspell backup because you have nine mana. Yeah, and and they have one counterspell up. You know you can counter that. And then you have a Dream Trawler in play and that's it. So even though Dream Trawler is not a tremendously good card in the matchup, like its presence, the possibility of it being in somebody's hand... Um, and I mean, same thing with like Teferi, Hero of Dominaria or whatever, like the fact that these expensive things just exist in some numbers make, you know, you're walking on eggshells the whole time because the entire game, of course it is about posturing and getting your lands into play and stuff like that. But really the thing that all of that is kind of coalesced around is, well, I can't let them play a Teferi and get it onto the battlefield and then untap with it. Like that is when you die. And yeah, these Threats are usually really, really hard to deal with. Yeah. So once one of them actually resolves, you're on the back foot. Like, if you have to spend a turn wrathing for a Dream Trawler, your opponent is then in the same exact spot as they were last turn, where you can just play a Teferi with a Counterspell backup. Mm-hmm. And then you're in the same spot again. So once so one player gets ahead, there's they're just likely to win from there. Mm-hmm. and let Because it's so hard to deal with their threat and then play your own and come back from behind while still representing anything and if your hand's particularly the bad like if you've just got all removal spells just jam your teferi and hope they don't have a counter spell <laughs> like yeah if you're just not going to win the game because you don't have anything just jam sometimes jamming marks and this is all like that concept got condensed way down when teferi time raveler was legal and standard because teferi time raveler was the huge game ending threat it just happened yeah. to cost three mana. So all of the posturing and like goofing around was around this three mana card that if somebody resolved one, they p- pretty much always won the game. I mean, Elspeth Conquer's Death could kind of complicate that, but if you got any sort of mana advantage, even in the mid game, if you had six lands and they had four, you're going to get your Teferi out and protect it and they're going to lose the game. Yeah. And then sideboarding is kind of neat, though. Yes. Because the games do change drastically after sideboarding, thankfully, because game one is such a slog. Uh, One thing I would highly recommend if you're, even if you're playing online with a chess clock, is just play this matchup efficiently. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say quickly, because you don't want to really rush through your decision making, but you can't afford to take too much time thinking because you will run out of time (laughs) there's just especially in paper magic but that doesn't exist right now but if we ever get back to a place where you can play paper magic you really want to make sure you're not spending so much of your own priority thinking you want to be thinking mostly when your opponent has priority and you want to have internalized a lot of the sequences you know of course when if my opponent misses a land drop do i cast this to fairy is is this is it time now like if my opponent casts this spell at the end of my turn and I have two counter spells in my hand, do I just counter it? If they have, you know, if they do that on turn four, do I counter? If they do it on turn five, do I counter? Like uh, these things, you start to just sort of internalize them. And you may not be able to actually answer those questions if somebody asks you. But if you sit down and you're in the game, then you'll have a feel like you'll be leaning one way or the other because you've done it before. 
what were we talking about before this? Sideboarding? Sideboarding? Yeah. Sideboarding games, yeah. <laughs> so the cool thing about sideboarding is in control matchups, your cards are very obviously bad or good. <laughs> like, the best things you can sideboard in control mirrors are cheap threats. There's not a lot of those. Uh, currently, I think what Archon of Sun's Grace is kind of the cheapest good threat in control decks, like the blue whitish mm-hmm. kind of deal. Yeah, we don't have Search for Azkanta anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the past, like when Torrential Gear Hulk was legal and blue red control was good, uh, I would see Dragon Lore, Dragon Master Outcast. Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. name of the card. Yeah. It's, it's just a one drop, a one one that doesn't do anything until you have six lands in play. But because it's so cheap, and there's so few removal post board. Mm-hmm. Just getting something in play that had an effect on the game later was good enough. Yeah. So the the best things you can have are actually just more threats, because you want to be able to actually overload your opponent. This is one of the reasons why we see so many shark typhoons in sideboards too. Yeah, they should be main deck, but they are also should be in sideboards. <laughs> yeah, I I mean you can't you often can't afford to put four shark typhoons main deck, but in a lot of these mirror type game mirror type matches like you want four in your 75 like you want to have four to present against your opponent in the mirror yeah shark typhoon especially is just a huge uncounterable flying creature is draws wild a card. yeah yeah that draws a card and you don't it's have to tap out wild <laughs> nope it's it's kind of the perfect control we'll see it for years i'll imagine in older formats too mm-hmm. uh, it's just going to be like the the premier Maybe even finisher for control decks. I mean, once they ban her, uh, fingers crossed. One thing that I really like about it, too, is that it props up one of my favorite cards from the recent sets, which is Brazen Borrower. Like, it kind of forces the control decks to play some Brazen Borrowers because you can't beat that shark any other way, especially with oh. Teferi gone. Yeah, having a, like, making a 6 6 shark and, like, being able to attack your opponent with it that nothing can deal with. <laughs> It's also a really good response to a resolve planeswalker as well. Yeah. You so just smack a Teferi down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that 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 card in particular falls so outside our normal metrics for ways to approach the control matchup. It just like addresses it so perfectly that it's not like, yeah, try a cheap threat. Try something with flash. It's just like uncounterable, has flash. You can pump all your mana into it. Like, doesn't put your shields down in any meaningful way. Isn't a dead draw early game because you can cycle it if you're land light. Yep. It's, so it's it's the perfect card if you're playing a format where Shark Typhoon is legal and you're con- worried about the control matchup in any just play a bunch respect, of Shark Typhoons. <laughs> just try some Shark Typhoons. What can go wrong? Not a lot. It has cycling. No, not a lot. If you only have two lands, cycle it away. Yeah. So that that definitely upsets a lot of the like classic heuristics about the control mirror. But and and so does Castle Ardenvale, honestly. Um that one is huge. It's the best card to draw. It's by far the best card to draw game one in the control mirror. Oh yeah, for sure. And it, you don't really put Castle Ardenvale on your sideboard though, but you do want to just draw them. Yeah. Yeah. Shark Typhoons are the the sideboarding of Castle Ardenvale. <laughs> yes. Generally, sideboarded games, yeah, you have your wraths and stuff like that that you know you want to trim. You don't you don't want your 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 like two mana creature removal or whatever. Like you have obviously bad cards, and then the sideboarded control matchups I I do find very fun a lot of the time because yeah. 
both players have a lot of good cards. It's more fun now, or would be more fun now, I think, if Control existed with Teferi Time Raveler not part of the equation because the game rotated around rotated so much around somebody resolving this three mana planeswalker yeah for a long time control matchups were just like how many mystical speeds to fairies are you playing with yeah how many are you willing to respect on turn four (laughs) (laughs) and uh narset serves a role kind of it doesn't lock your opponent out of the game like to fairy does but it does good work while being a powerful card advantage tool that digs you to your shark typhoons. So I like that a lot for early game stuff. Cheap. Though. Yeah. I I will say that I'd like trimming removal is just a given because there's usually not that many cards you can actually get rid of with your removal, mm-hmm. but wraths. I like keeping up a of if I'm worried about specific cards. Dream rats are, yeah. Wraths are obviously terrible against planeswalkers. But sometimes you just need one against Castle Ardenvale or like a shark token and something mm-hmm. else. Or maybe even just a shark token, honestly. Right. And if it's an granted, eight. Yeah, it's not great to trade out spot removal for Wrath to kill a shark token. But if you are also trying to kill a bunch of Castle Ardenvale tokens or a Dream Trawler is it part of the equation... Mm-hmm. You want to have generalized answers that can deal with all these things rather than like having one wrath and then two spot removal spells and then one something else. It's just just play the wraths as your removal cards and hope if you want to take that approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, definitely you need to tailor your suite to exactly what threats that you think your opponent will be presenting based on the format. Yeah, and Shark Typhoon's a really hard one to play around. Brazen Borrower has been pretty good against it, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. mostly because it's also a cheap threat that also deals with Shark Typhoon. And deals with nice. Narset as well. So, yeah. like, Brazen Borrower is just, I don't know. Yeah, I have this very weird feeling hard. when I have it in my hand. and I'm so glad it can't block. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> if it could block, oh, it would be really messed up. Oh, uh, oh. The the games, how they play out inside board games, are a lot different than game one. Mm-hmm. One of the most changed things, I mentioned how you just never counter card draw spells in game one. They all can be worth countering in games two and three because you have such a higher percentage of live draws. Whereas in game one, if you're spending a card draw spell, draw two removal spells or removal spell on a land, it's, your opponent doesn't care. Not, it's not worth countering. It's not worth losing a counter spell over. Mm-hmm. But because you have so many more counter spells, there's usually more on your sideboard. And the card draw spells are giving you plus cards and drawing relevant cards. You're not just going to have very many dead cards in your deck anymore. Yeah. It's worth countering, depending on, you know, the various aspects of the game, like how many counter spells you have, the lands, when when this is happening. It could just be worth countering card draw spells to stop your opponent from gaining more resources over you. Yeah, on a similar note, and kind of post-board especially, because this is a, sort of a Mystical Dispute-related comment, but which, side note, like Mystical Dispute has also turned a lot of the, the control mirror rules on their head. But um, Well, it's just like Super Spell Pierce, right? Yeah, it's a very good Spell Pierce. <laughs> yeah. Consider, this is another Uro aside, consider countering the front half of Uro more. It is 
you know, one of the reasons that Uro is so good in this type against the control decks is, you know, it's a divination that, like, it draws a card, and then it also draws you a 4-mana 6-6 that draws a card. That's the second card off of the divination. They're always going to draw that 6-6, whether or not you counter it. But if you counter the the front side of Uro, you are keeping the card out of their hand. You're keeping them from making an extra land drop, both of which help them to get closer to casting the Uro out of their graveyard. I mean, it is all hand dependent and stuff like that. And yes, it, it feels it can feel weird to use a mystical dispute to do that. Um, and if you have a very specific plan for it, like you are you are going to force through El Planeswalker on this turn with the dispute then maybe that is what you are assigning that dispute to. But that might not work if you let them get that extra land drop and that extra card, you know? So I, I, I really think that people should be countering Uro more. Yeah, especially if the extra land drop is just an untapped blue source, and all of a sudden they have Mystical Speed up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, you laugh, but that's, like, very real. Yeah. Oh, a, a lot of times I have held my breath as I've cast my Uro and been like, nobody counters the Uro here, and if I do this, I'll have a land and I'll still have Mystical Dispute up, so I'll just cast the Uro. Every once in a while they counter it, and I'm like, I might lose next turn. This was when like, you, Teferi was a thing. and You just gasp audibly. Yeah. You 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 drop the china on the floor and it shatters. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's, everyone hears it from downstairs and says, ugh. Chris's Uros must have gotten countered. Counter more Uros, for sure. Yeah, the the biggest part about Uro is just that it gets you ahead in mana, which is, as we've said, so, so important in this matchup. Mm -hmm. Because the more mana you have, the more you can do, which is obvious. But being (laughs) the difference between playing a card and playing two cards is gigantic, especially one of those cards protects the first one. Yeah, definitely. And plus, you make bigger sharks with more mana. And you can't have that. You can't let your opponent be doing that. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Uro in the graveyard and a 4-4 shark? No, th- no, sir. Yeah. The calculus of when to put your shields down in the control mirror is so difficult. I think that paying attention to opponent... This is way easier in person, but you can also get some idea online... I mean, number one, you have to know how big is their punish that they can do to you. No Teferi in the format anymore, so or at least in standard. So maybe it's less. Maybe you actually can deal with whatever. They, and it also it all depends on the removal that you have in your hand or whatever, of course. But, you know, pay attention to your opponent's sequencing and stuff. Do Did they make plays that make you think that they have X in hand? And I'm trying to come up with a specific example because examples are always really helpful, but I'm blanking just a little bit right now. Well, if your opponent taps out for something or if they play a Planeswalker with Counterspell Magic, like as protection, Mm -hmm. uh, you can choose to fight over the Teferi and you might win that fight, you might lose it, whatever. Let's say it's irrelevant. What that tells you the fact that they were willing to use mana on their turn and fight over it is that they don't have a flash threat they're not like if you had a card draw spell you could just consider casting that at the end of your opponent's turn to get more resources Mm -hmm. or if you had a shark typhoon you would just cycle out it instead because it's more or less free Mm -hmm. your opponent can't counter it sure so just by playing a card even playing it properly air quotes as you 
have the mana for, to protect it, that gives the information that your opponent doesn't have cards th- or things they would rather do, like uh, things they would do on your turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm right, and 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 so then the other side of that is when you are that player and you're choosing to jam, you know, what makes you choose to jam? It, sometimes it is that you don't. It is just the best thing that you have you don't have a shark you're you want to like maybe you have two five mana planeswalkers in your hand and you just want to trade one for a card at this point or something like that and you don't think i mean one of the really messed up things about the teferi hero dominaria era was that casting the second teferi was really good because teferi could tuck the other person's teferi yeah i i mean and that was somewhat negated by the fact that Teferi untapped lands so you could Teferi untap have negate up you know have an extra counter spell up but given how much counter spells cost and stuff like that if you manage to if they just had to play Teferi and then you were like all right here's my Teferi they play a counter spell you play a counter spell you tuck their Teferi you're good yeah um, so in that case like the punish is for casting your Teferi and resolving it. Their Teferi just trumps it. So you have to be really aware of how these punishes work and the, the sequencing exactly of, of how they play out. Like maybe sometimes you're flooded on threats and you don't want your opponent and you, you're light on counter magic and you don't want your opponent to have the chance to start pulling ahead with card draw spells while you really can't do anything about it. Yeah, or shark typhoons. Yeah, or shark typhoons. Whatever, whatever it may be. So you just start running out threats and force your opponent to counter them. Maybe you can't actually deal with. Maybe you just have one counter spell, so you can deal with one of their threats. But you just need to get the cards out of your hands so that you can actually progress the game. Because if you're not doing anything with your cards in hand, uh, you can represent counter spell for a long time. But because now that there's so many free punishes like shark mm-hmm. typhoon or brazen bar or uro to an extent. Yeah, it's very very difficult to just do nothing and force your opponent to play around an imaginary counterspell for so long. Well, and even if you do have one counterspell, like say you have a Dovin's veto in your hand, you can't just ride that. Like your opponent at some point is going to go, "Here's the Shark Typhoon." If you have a bunch of Planeswalkers in your hand, so you have to figure out how to sequence them to take advantage of this thing, and maybe that means just running out your um, your. Teferi Master of Time on turn four, so that on turn five you can play Narset with Dovin's Veto. I don't know what deck we're playing at this point. I, I don't yeah, know what yeah. this is. We've got Terror of Hero of Dominaria in this too. But. <laughs> yeah, but but you know you know what I'm saying is like figure out a couple of turns ahead. Like how can I use my mana? How can I use my spells in a way that like actually can deal with certain groups of cards that my opponent could have in their hand? If you can. Like, the sequence of go, 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 when your hand is a couple of Planeswalkers and a Dovin's Veto and a card a spell or something like that. And that sequence of go, go, go just means that if they happen to have a Shark Typhoon, you're just going to lose to it. Then you can not do that. Like, you can jam, and the presence of cards like Shark Typhoon make jamming a, a little bit more of an important thing to be doing jamming planeswalkers into shark typhoon is maybe not the best example but sure um you know but if you like if you jam your two planeswalkers and they end up having two counter spells 
they might not have a punish. Like mm-hmm. that just happens sometimes. For sure. Like you've traded two cards for two cards and you're kind of at neutral then. There, there's only so many big sorcery speed punishes that you can afford to have in your deck anyways. So they're not yeah. guaranteed to be able to just gigantic planeswalker you on the backswing. But one of the things I would caution against while you're trying to craft these turns where you're taxing their mana and then you figured out that you can play your card and protect it with a veto and then you've resolved your thing. Uh, that's a lot of turns I've watched people play control decks. They kind of end their thought process there. They're mm-hmm. like, okay, now that I've got my opponent in the spot, I've protected my thing. I want to resolve. It's resolved. We're good. They forget that their opponent can then do something. Yeah. <laughs> like not just to answer it, but like resolve their own thing. It's uh Elspeth conquers death that always like slams the door on me when I have not thought far enough. And I've just been like, yep, got this thing into play. Hell yeah. And they're like, you're tapped out, buddy. Here's an Elspeth Conquers death. And you think, oh, man, I this was so easy to just think about just yep. a little bit further. Yep, yep, yep. For but sure. it's really easy to just be so caught up on figuring out how to resolve something. You forget to think about what happens after you resolve it. Mm-hmm. So that's something I would caution against because yeah. I've made the mistake many, many, many times myself. Like, all right, I finally resolved my Teferi. Whew. Oh, wait, there's my opponent's Teferi. Daggummit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, they have agency and magic cards too. Brutal. Right. Unbelievable. <laughs> my, my favorite brief era of the control mirror was when we were boarding in like four History of Benalia. And sometimes you just <laughs> killed your opponent with History of Vanalia into History of Vanalia. Those games where you drew two Histories of Vanalia, mm. and your opponent countered the second one, but then they were at eight. So. <laughs> you just have four power of guys just <laughs> killing them. I played an entire uh, regionals with Cobblade for the first time. It was a horrible... This is like the worst prepared turnout I've ever done. Because I wasn't planning to go to this tournament, I had never played Cobblade before. Oh no! And I had, I had stayed. It was it was very very early Cobblade. It was like right, either after or before Pro Tour Paris. I don't remember. Okay. So it wasn't like Menace Number One Cobblade. It was this is a good deck Cobblade. Mm-hmm. So I had gotten a lot of advantage that day just by playing the best deck, but no one quite really knew that yet. And I, I'd also stayed up until like. 4 a.m. the night before. <laughs> it's a little so, out of character. Well, it was college, so, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a terrible, terrible environment because I, if I would have, pl- I drew round one. Jeez. I played the, I played the played mirror. played the mirror and, yep. Yeah, and I never, I never draw. Mm-hmm. I, I play very quickly, especially in control decks. A lot of shuffling in those Cobblade mirrors. Yeah, that wasn't too bad, but there is. And then I was in the Cobblade bracket. (laughs) But luckily for me, uh, no one was really playing Cobblade that tournament because it was new. I don't remember the exact timeline, but there were not that many Cobblade players. So I played against like Mono Red and Midrange decks and even Blue Black Control. Uh, I noticed every time I would play a control deck, I would do horribly, but I would win anyway because my cards are so powerful. <laughs> and anytime I played against anything else, you just crush it because you're a cobblade. Yeah. And, Batter Skull. Yeah. You're dead. Well, no, this was before Batter Skull. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, this was before, like it was definitely before Batter School. I don't remember if it was before or right after Pro Tour Paris, which okay. was the Mirrored and Besiege Pro Tour. Okay, so you just had swords. Yeah. But this, it, I I did not know what I was doing at all. I made so many different mistakes, and I just thankfully relied on my cards that were banned a few months ago or later <laughs> to carry me. You can't really do that anymore. You got to think about your choices, and like maybe Uro gets banned, sure, but now everyone knows that Uro is going to get banned. Everyone knows Shark Typhoon exists. People aren't. People are always playing the best cards now. Right, you're playing four Shark Typhoons because you can't have fewer Shark Typhoons than your opponent does in their deck. Right. So you just, you, you know the range of your opponent's cards, like everyone does now. You just know what people are playing all the time. It's sure. very rare that I play against a deck where I, I'm like, oh wow, I just never would have thought of this. Sometimes it does happen and that's cool. Well, in Historic... Because well, sure. <laughs> you have no idea what cards are legal in the format. Yeah, sometimes I play against a, a game of Historic and my opponent plays a card that was printed in 1997. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Why I is this my, legal? I got a uh Pillar of Flamed. And I was just like, okay, I guess that was a possibility. I didn't know that was in the range, but that happened. Yeah, yesterday we talked about how I don't even know the name of the card. The enchantment that gives all your lands cycling is legal. Yeah. We, we okay. should just start playing a game where we message each other random cards and ask the other person if it's legal and historic. Because there's a good chance just neither of us We kind of knows. have started doing that a little <laughs> bit, I mean, yeah. Yeah, because it's fun. But they've all been legal and historic so far, so I'm just going to throw one out there. Right, we do need to start throwing in some, some cards that kind of maybe could be legal but aren't. Is this card from Conspiracy in there? I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> Well, nothing with the monarch is in there yet, at least, so... Are you sure? Quite sure. Okay. Like 90% <laughs> sure. <laughs> if I showed you... If I, like, mocked up a crown animation to go on top of one player, that would give some real credence to my argument that monarch is in every. I'm I'm pretty confident that even, like, the bad monarch cards would still be completely busted in Historic. There's a lot of really good cards in Historic, though, like... Five mana, four four green creature that makes you the monarch is probably not going to cut it. Okay, any of the like four mana ones though would would be crazy, I think. But yes, probably the five mana four four is not quite there. So I could have I could have asked you if that was a stork. Well, I, I I would be pretty aware that it's not. I think, <laughs> I think I'd get that one. I think I think we've kind of finished our main topic though. Yeah, I think so too. I think this was a a good discussion. I think we hit on a lot of good stuff. I think there's a lot of things we probably left unsaid. So, oh, for sure. Like, if there's any specific questions you have for us that we could try to answer, please, please let us know. Uh, especially if you want to have us expound on specific points or do something like this in the future. Uh, this is kind of an experimental thing, so we're still working on it. Yeah, but we will probably be doing more topics as time goes on. And our... You know, we're planning to start doing bonus episodes for patrons. All of those are going to be on more general topics, kind of like the level up episode concept. Or just random stuff. Whatever they want, whatever the patrons want here. Uh, there, there may be some non-magic related bonus episodes for sure. But uh, if you want to have some input into those episodes, and also if you'd like to hear those episodes, you can become a patron. Head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. And sign up, and we will send you some tokens and 
maybe pins and hats, depending on what tier you're signed up at. We got lots of stuff, and I have been doing my best to get as much of it out as I can. So, you know, if you've been waiting on stuff for a little while, it should be mostly on its way to you. And if it's not, reach out to me. Yeah, we'd love to see you become a patron if you are enjoying the show. That would be very cool to have you come hang out in the Discord. If you want to find us online, we are on social media. I'm tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I'm at Lee McLeo. That's pretty much it for us. Probably going to be talking about some legacy next week in anticipation of the Mana Traders legacy event. Uh, If you are uh, looking to start a Mana Traders account, if you want to sign up, use the code tournament, and that will give us a little bit of a kickback from that, which we would certainly appreciate, and you get a solid discount for the first three months of your subscription. I think that's pretty much it for us. Yep, I think I think we've talked quite a bit, so we definitely rest have for, talked quite a bit. <laughs> gotta rest up for next week. Yes. Um, thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Bye.